to all of you and to all those in the tape program. Over 1,000 people in the audience today, in spite of our sparse crowd here. You know, collecting paintings is a risky business. I was reading a story the other day about one of the very wealthy men in our country who began to buy a collection of Western art, and he bought a Remington, or I forget how many hundred thousand dollars, whatever it was he paid, only to find out years later that he had bought a fake. But he still has his fake in his collection right in the very beginning of a sort of a private museum that he made, so everyone can come in and look at it, can hem and haw and oh and awe over it, and of course, unless you're a specialist, unless you're some kind of an art critic, you can't tell the difference between the fake Remington and the real Remington. A lot of people would just as soon have the fake, because I mean the horses and the cowboys and the motion that is there and the, the Western art. The art is great. It just wasn't done by Remington. It might have been done by an artist as good or maybe even better than Remington, but it wasn't a Remington. You probably heard stories in the past of how people have discovered beneath the paint of a beautiful painting that there was another painting underneath. And there have been weird stories of how actually great masters have been painted over by other artists who have actually fabricated some kind of a different painting to cover up the original painting, and who knows why they did that. There's quite a difference between reality and counterfeit, but really it's only in the eye of the beholder. Now, Satan the devil is the greatest counterfeiter about. In the recent season, the Days of Unleavened Bread and the Passover, we in God's church went through a very rich tapestry, a very rich and rewarding fabric of meaning of the Lord's Supper, of imbibing of a little bit of wine and the piece of unleavened bread symbolizing Christ's blood and his broken body, and then of observing seven days of unleavened bread. And between what was brought out this year, and I think God's Holy Spirit inspired that, so that instead of accentuating the negative of we are able to put sin out of our lives, we were accentuating the positive that we are imbibing and we are living on and drinking in of Jesus Christ during those days. Now, what does Satan the devil cleverly paint over that rich fabric of the Days of Unleavened Bread and of the Passover? Well, he paints over it with a day that is called Ishtar in ancient Babylon, or Ostara, among the Nordics of Scandinavia, or Ashtaroth with a silent H, and pronounced Astart or Astarte by the ancient Sumerians, Babylonians, Zidonians, and then eventually by the Egyptians and the Greeks. And with all the accoutrements that are probably now being, you know, gradually taken off the store shelves now that Easter is over, of eggs and chocolate bunnies and hot cross bun or bun. Bun originally was boos, B-O-U-S. It meant the ox or the oxen. And the ox was originally portrayed in those ancient countries as having a solar disk between its horns and was quite a feature of the ancient Egyptians as well as the Babylonians, because an oxen is one of the four faces of a cherubim, and as God told them not to worship the host of heaven, they actually were worshiping the cherub that covereth, or Satan the devil, who fell. And an ox is nothing more than a symbol of Satan the devil. What do we have today? Hot cross bun, and they don't even know where the old German word bun came from. But the hot cross cake was originally baked to the Queen of Heaven, and it had a solar wheel on it. So here are all these interesting things that nobody knows anything about. The Easter lily, I told people on the television program that when the pagans looked at it, and I didn't want to get dramatic or in any kind of a detail, you can go look at a lily yourself if you want to, that they tended to see sexual intercourse in progress. They tried to make something dirty and sinful out of a lovely flower. So here's this paint smeared all over the beautiful fabric of God's holy days. Now we know the reality is the Passover and Days of Unleavened Bread, and we know the counterfeit is Easter. Now the counterfeit in December 25th is old Saint Nick and the reindeer and the holly wreath and exchanging of gifts and orbs and bulbs and trees that are supposed to be tamas or the little tree that sprang up overnight out of the Yule logs, a symbol of the so-called risen, the fake resurrection of Nimrod. And we understand all of the various fabrication and the counterfeit surrounding December 25th. We know that it came from the ancient Brumalia, or the Saturnalia, the Romans, the winter solstice, when they prevailed upon the sun god to lengthen his journey and to come back and warm up the climate towards spring once again. But what does Christmas conceal? 
You ever think about that? What does it hide? What event ever took place that is meaningful or in any way symbolic in God's plan that Satan the devil felt he had to wheel up all of the really big guns, I mean wheel up the big cannon and really go to work because you've got to hand it to Satan the devil. The one festival in the year that he has really gotten the world excited about is not a festival which takes place on a sort of a revolving calendar around the harvest seasons and therefore obliterates the Feast of Tabernacles. There's nothing superimposed atop the Feast of Tabernacles. What festival is it that is superimposed atop the Feast of Tabernacles in the fall, the first and the eighth day? I don't know what it would be because, of course, it comes and goes at different times of the year. But he, he really pulled out all the stops when he began to counterfeit something around December 25th. I wonder why that is. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us to observe the day of Christ's birth. On the other hand, it doesn't tell us not to. We'll talk about that a little later. We can know through several ways, and of course historically we've proved this time and again, that Christ was not born on or anywhere near December 25th. We know that from several simple exercises in logic. We know that the shepherds were not out in the fields in the winter. We know that Mary couldn't have taken that difficult trip in the ninth month in the middle of winter because it was about 90 miles. They had to ascend about 1,500 feet, and they had to journey over very rough and rocky, hilly terrain to get up to Jerusalem. But you can follow along with a little bit of logical reasoning. The Romans were not stupid, and just like the Persians with their satrapies and their puppet states and governments, they wanted to levy a head tax and to squeeze the impoverished and occupied countries that they controlled for the last dime, or at that time a different kind of money, that they could possibly get out of them. So logically, the Romans thought, if we're going to have a poll tax or a head tax, which is like income tax, we would like to avoid revolt. We'd like to avoid sending the entire populace of the country into an armed uprising. We really don't want to have to send another couple of legions down there to help Pilate out of a jam. So the best way to do it would be when the Jews are going to be coming en masse by their thousands to Jerusalem anyway. Furthermore, we want to get them while they're fat and rich, so it's better to get them just after the harvest season when they have produced their crops and, and uh, they have slain their fat cattle and they have all of their money in their hand and they've come to Jerusalem anyway at a time of the year when they would all be there naturally. Actually, we know that Christ was born sometime in the autumn. Now, what happens in the autumn when a lot of Jews go to Jerusalem? The Feast of Tabernacles is what happens in the autumn when a lot of Jews go to Jerusalem. If you look into that and you see all of the reasons why it could not have been in the winter and it had to be in autumn, they become really quite involved. It has to do with the 70 weeks prophecy, with the building of the temple, with the decree of Artaxerxes, with the conception and the birth of John the Baptist and the beginning of his ministry, with the birth of Jesus Christ and the death of Jesus Christ and the 70 weeks as well as the prophecy concerning the one week of seven years cut off in the midst of the week, three and one half years, of the messenger of the new covenant who was to confirm the covenant with many for one week, falsely understood by some so-called scholars as being the Antichrist confirming a false covenant, which is an error, which I will brand right now from the pulpit as a very gross error. It's obvious that Christ was the one who was cut off in the midst of the week and has yet a three and one half week or year ministry, three and one half day, a day being a year in prophecy, to yet be fulfilled. But did anything of any significance ever happen in God's plan on December 25th? That's the question that I have before you. Now, in a recent sermon, I told you how the Apostle Paul, in approaching the Areopagites, said to them when he saw all these hundreds of idols, but he spied the one idol that said, to the unknown God. Paul took a little different approach than some of the church has in the past years, and instead of saying, look at all of this rotten paganism, you dumb heathens, how can you be such ignorant fools? and getting himself into an adversary relationship with his audience, he said, I perceive that you're, you're quite a religious group of people. And I saw your devotions when I passed by. And here was an altar to the unknown God, him therefore whom you are worshiping, but worshiping ignorantly. Let me help you out a little. Let me explain a little more about it. Now, the approach which I have been taking to this world is not an hostile approach to bask in my pharisaical knowledge and in their 
bovine stupidity, which does nothing but get a lot of no answers, turns them off, gets them angry, makes them ask the kind of a question that you heard in the sermonette, are they even Christian, makes them think we're a bunch of Old Testament liturgical Jews who are thinking if they had a new Talmud and saddle it upon people's backs, but instead to take a slightly different approach. I have a gentleman with whom I used to play a lot of golf. He's a good friend of mine, he used to be a groundskeeper out there, and I was telling my wife about him. Their son went to jail. Well, his wife, I guess, is what you'd call a good Baptist. I saw the last of him many months ago. I haven't seen him on the golf course on a Sunday from then on. And the guy is doing what? He's trying to worship God. He's trying to get his life straightened out. He's trying to get right with God because he's got something he wants from God. He's desperate to get his son out of jail. His wife has gotten him to go into church. He's completely changed his life. He's trying to be a good person. What do I do? Launch into a diatribe and I see him about how stupid, how ignorant, how completely deceived, how much of a devil worshiper he is? Well, of course not. Let's turn to John, the first chapter, and verse 1. Show you something we may have missed from time to time in reading over some of these scriptures. In John, the first chapter, as we know, this is the real beginning of the Bible because it begins even before Genesis which begins at creation week, which is recreation, perhaps almost four and a half billion years after the event. In the beginning was the word, Greek word logos, and the word was with God, Elohim originally in the Hebrew, Adonai, or Theus in the Greek, and the word was God. Most of the mainstream Protestant fundamentalist denominations don't understand that verse. They just don't understand that Jesus Christ of the New Testament is the God of the Old Testament, except in a few cases where it makes it very clear it's talking of God the Father, as in one case in Daniel, where it said the Ancient of Days came before the Ancient of Days, etc., or when David prayed, I think it's in Psalm 97, the Lord said to my Lord, sit thou at my feet, where it's obviously the Yahweh, or the Yahweh said to my Adonai, the eternal creator, meaning in this case the Father, said to my Lord, or the Son, with whom David dealt. Sit thou at my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. But in most cases in the Old Testament, the God with whom the Israelites dealt, who appeared to Abraham, who appeared or spoke through an archangel to Moses and gave the Ten Commandments with his own finger, is the one who became Christ. The same was in the beginning with God. All things, the universe, that blazing sun up there, and the hundreds of billions and quadrillions, trillions, more of them much bigger than ours, were made by him, and without him, was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. I'll skip along because we've read a lot of this. He was in the world, verse 10, and the world was made by him, identifying clearly the one who was in the world as Christ, identifying clearly Christ as creator, and the world knew him not. Beginning in verse 14, And the word was made flesh, and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The word dwelt. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us. It's only used about four times in the entire Bible in the New Testament. It is a totally different word from all the other occasions where the word is used in the New Testament, which merely means what it says, dwelt, meaning lived, abode, stayed there. This word comes from a Greek word which means tabernacled, meaning dwelt temporarily, dwelt in booths or tabernacled. The word was made flesh and he tabernacled among us, is what the Greek word plainly states. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, let's go to the first chapter of Matthew and look at a little bit of the account of the birth of Jesus Christ. Matthew, the first chapter. And I'll begin to read in verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. Actually, this word birth is not the word ganao, which I have explained over the many, many years, is a word which connotes both begettal, or conception, and birth. This is a different word. This word is Genesis, or G-E-N-N-E-S-I-S, -E -E just like Genesis, but with an extra N, as we would put that transliterated into the, into the English language from the Greek. 
And it comes from a root Greek word, ganao, which is used everywhere else. But in the case of ganesis, it implies the father having the positive action. So this verse is really telling us now the conception of Jesus Christ, not the birth, but clearly the conception by and through the activity of the Father was according to this, on this wise. And it's obvious from the context it's what it's talking about, isn't it? Because it says right in the verse, when as his mother Mary, and actually the Greek is Maria, or it can be a different way of spelling it, was a spouse to Joseph before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. So the Greek word is when Jesus was conceived. The conception of Jesus Christ was on this wise. Now, Joseph was a righteous man and was going to put her away privately because he thought there had been something here, some kind of skullduggery. Verse 20, while he thought of these things, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, take your Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and he shall bring forth the Son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. There's a great deal more about the birth of Christ that I'm going to skip over for the time being. Now let's skip ahead a little bit and ask this question. I think you all know the answer. When did Christ die, and how old was he? Well, he began to be, it said, about 30 at the beginning of his ministry. He died exactly three and one-half years later. In the spring of the year, or in the middle of the first month, on the 14th at even, just before the 15th began, because he was the Paschal Lamb, and we've gone all through that in the last couple of weeks. And so instead of commencing at the time of the spiritual year, as it was looked at in the ancient Hebrew calendar, Jesus Christ's ministry is reckoned from the beginning of the civil year, which is Tisri, or there's another way of pronouncing that, a different name. Only two of the Jewish names have two different names, or I should say months have two different names on them, or at the equivalent of our late September. Now, Jesus Christ died when he was 31, 33 and one-half years of age. We know exactly the date on which he died. It was the 14th of Nisan, just before the 15th, on 31 A.D. That happens to be a firm date on a calendar which is in existence, from which you can extrapolate or interpolate, and you can go back and you can wade backwards and forwards through all those years before and since, and you can determine when every one of the annual holy days were, when every one of the weekly Sabbaths fell, and every date is locked down and preserved for us in history. There is no question whatsoever about the time on which Jesus Christ of Nazareth died. Now, by simply coming back forward a little bit, we can determine exactly when Jesus was born within a few days, maybe within a week, maybe less. So let's do that for a minute. If he was 33 and a half and had about a three and one half year ministry and was about 30 at the beginning of his ministry, and the ministry began at the beginning of the civil year, which is in the autumn, or the first of Tisri, which is called Ethanim, it had to be 27 A.D. is exactly when his ministry began. Now, you can count backwards, 27, 26, 25, 24, and I've put every one of those figures down in the paper here, 1, 2, 3, 4, and come on up to 30, and you come to 4 B.C., and you have to subtract 1 because there are two years labeled 1, 1 A.D. and 1 B.C., and you would not account for that, and you come up with exactly 30 years. Dionysius the Little, of course, came up with the pagan calendars. We know it today. Scholars who know when Jesus was born, and a few of them do, although Usher's chronology is one year off, and Halley's Bible Handbook is one year off, and most of them will not accept 31 A.D. for the time of the death of Christ for one simple reason, that the Jewish calendar would not allow the 14th of Nisan to fall on a Wednesday in any year except 31. So they'll pick 29, 30, 32, or 33. Every scholar by the hundreds will pick all those years. If they were playing blind man's buff or pin the tail on the donkey, they would have to, by mistake, zero in on 31 A.D. sooner or later. But not a one of them will for the simple reason they want to cling to Good Friday, Easter Sunday morning. They will not admit that Jesus Christ died on a Wednesday and was resurrected late on a Sabbath afternoon, was not there when Mary and the others came to the tomb early in that morning. So. You subtract one year, you go backwards from the beginning of his ministry. At the beginning of Tisri, or Ethanim, I should say, in 27 A.D., you come to 4 B.C. Now, of course, I've known that for years. I learned that Jesus was born in 4 B.C., the first year I ever went to Ambassador College, 1953. 
and that is very much locked into concrete by research and by many scholars who also know the truth about that. Now let's do something interesting. If Jesus was born in 4 BC, approximately when was he born? Approximately when was he born? What season of the year was it when Jesus was born? All right, let's go back and take a look at what it says over here in the book of Luke. The book of Luke has a very interesting narrative about the events surrounding the birth of Christ in the first chapter. We see the Annunciation by Gabriel, who announced the birth of John the Baptist. And we want to deal with that first of all, so we can come progressively forward to the birth of Christ. And it was Gabriel who was talking to Zacharias in the fifth verse, in the days of Herod, the king of Judah, a certain priest named Zacharias of the course of Abiah was ministering in the temple. Now, he was of the course of Abiah, and I want to explain that very briefly. In the Old Testament, it is Abijah. You will find that all delineated in 1 Chronicles 24.10, where all the courses of the Levites, or the Levites, the priests, were laid out, and also in Nehemiah 12.17, four of them returned from captivity. By the time of Christ, they had actually taken the names of the original Levites who had to serve a certain course of one week's duration, always commencing on a Sabbath, twice in a year, and all of the priests together served on all the annual high days, especially the three seasonal ones of Passover, Days of Unleavened Bread, Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. Otherwise, they would serve twice in the year. You will find in 1 Chronicles 24.10 that the course of Abiah or Abijah was the eighth course of the year. Knowing when the year begins, knowing the duration of each course, you can find exactly when was the course of Abiah. Now, the course of Abiah this particular year, when Gabriel is announcing to Zacharias that his wife, even though Zacharias is so aged, is going to conceive a child, happened to be the eighth course that commenced on the 22nd day of Tisri, which is Ethanim, which happened also to be the eighth and the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles in that year. It says, a certain priest named Zechariah of the course of Abiah and his wife was of the daughters of Aaron, her name, they always had to marry a daughter of Aaron, by the way, that was the law of the priesthood, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous, walking blameless in the ordinances and the commandments of God. They had no child, you can read what was said here. Zacharias was troubled, and an angel said, Fear not, verse 13, Elizabeth is going to bear a son. Well, Zacharias didn't really believe it. Verse 18, he said to the angel, How can I know this? I'm an old man and stricken in years. My wife is stricken in years. The angel said, I am Gabriel that stand in the presence of God, and I am sent to speak unto you and to show you these glad tidings. And behold, you're going to be dumb and not able to speak until the day that these things shall be performed, because you believe not my words which shall be fulfilled in their season. The people waited for Zechariah. He came out and obviously he couldn't talk. Notice verse 23. It came to pass that as soon as the days of his ministration were accomplished, he departed to his own house. Verse 24. And after those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived and hid herself five months, saying, Thus has the Lord dealt with me in the days wherein he looked upon me to take my reproach away from among men. Now, the, two, the dates for the two yearly courses of Abijah were the first 12th to the 18th of Chislu, December 6th to the 12th on our pagan calendar, and the second would be 12th to the 18th of Sivan, or Sivan, which is June 13th to the 19th. The announcement to Zacharias in the temple took place somewhere, and I think I, I gave you a, a wrong date earlier than that, was between the 12th and the 18th of Sivan, S-I-V-A-N, which is, corresponds to our pagan calendar, June 13th to the 19th, and it had to be in 5 B.C. It was one of those two. After that course had finished, according to Luke, the first chapter, and verse 23, he departed to his own house, but the following day would have been a Sabbath. He couldn't leave on the Sabbath. It was approximately 30 miles away. Luke 1.23 says, and verse 39 tells us, that he lived in a city of Judah in the hill country. He couldn't leave the day following because it was a Sabbath. He was a very, very old man. It might have required up to two days for him to travel that distance by Shanks' mare. He arrives on the 21st or the 22nd of Sivan, or Sivan. 
Now, always afterward, and even down into the early church among the Greeks and the Romans in the West, the 23rd of Sivan was associated with the date of John the Baptist's conception. And that corresponds to June 23rd and 24th. Why two dates? Well, because the Jewish days began at sunset and, of course, continued on to the next day. So you always have to have two days on the pagan calendar. Six months later, something interesting happens. Let's read in the Bible. It says, After those days, verse 24, Elizabeth conceived and hid herself five months, saying, Thus has the Lord dealt with me, and so on. In the sixth month, that is the sixth month of her pregnancy, the angel Gabriel was sent from God into a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin. She was still a virgin by that time. A spouse to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. The angel came and said, Hail, you that are highly favored, the Lord is with you, and bless are you among women. When she saw him, she was troubled at this saying, and cast in her mind what this salutation should mean. And the angel said, Fear not, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Behold, you shall conceive in your womb, and shall bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. He shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. What was the symbol of the Davidic covenant? What is the meaning of the throne of David? Verse 33, He shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. As I've said in the past, the Bible might be labeled like an old, old radio program and later a television program, one man's family, because it all began with the call of Abraham. And the call of Abraham was to become the father of many nations, through whom, repeating the process to his son and his grandson, Isaac and Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, God would eventually establish his earthly kingdom. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, says the Bible, so that always, at all times, and even repeated to David, there would not fail of David's royal seed, one of that royal family, to sit upon an earthly throne. It would be overturned, 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 no more overturned until he come whose right it is, it says in Isaiah, and that is Jesus Christ. And here is the promise that he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. If a cat of Mary, my soul rejoiceth, and so on, and perhaps under inspiration of the Holy Spirit there is a very beautiful prayer and exaltation. And as was mentioned, and I find this is always rather either uh, whatever it is, uh, coincidental or ironic or whatever you want to call it, but every time I plan on preaching a sermon, it seems like the sermonette will touch on certain aspects of it. But it was mentioned in the sermonette that the babe in the womb of Elizabeth, who is John the Baptist, now six months along and only three months from patrician, leaps for joy at the presence of Mary. Sometime between the annunciation of that angel, who was Gabriel, and Mary arriving at the house where Elizabeth is already six months along with John, conception takes place. Now, a question. We were in the book of John, and I read to you in the book of John how the Word was made flesh. Now, my question is, when did Christ become flesh? When he was born? But of course not. He had been flesh for nine months. The middle approximate day, the number of days, I should say, for normal human gestation is 280 days. 280 days. Kind of an interesting figure. Let me show you what you can do with that 280 days here. The order of the months are, if you take a look at these events concerning the fact that Elizabeth is six months pregnant, the fact that John the Baptist was conceived approximately when we think he was, at about the time of the conception concerning Mary, when Elizabeth's babe left in her womb, and Mary, filled with the Holy Spirit, verse 41 and 42 of the first chapter of Luke, gives the Magnificat of Mary, and says, My soul doth magnify the Lord, and so on, which seems strongly to indicate by this time she had already conceived, and that Jesus Christ of Nazareth was now beginning to develop in the womb. Counting backward, then, from the time of Jesus Christ's death, you can arrive at an approximate period for his birth. Counting backward from that, you can arrive at an approximate time of his conception, can you not? If you know the approximate time of his birth, you just go 280 days back, and you're at the date, within a day or two or three or four, of his conception. Now, when was Christ born? That's a very important question. When was Jesus Christ born? 
In the second chapter of the book of Luke, we read about the taxing. I mentioned before the policy of the Roman government. We know that he was about 30 at the beginning of his ministry, about 30 reckoned from the Jewish civil year, which begins at Tisri or in our autumn. He was 33 and a half when he was killed, and he was killed in the springtime during, of course, what we call the Passover and Days of Unleavened Bread season. So if he was born about 30 years before, when was he born? At the beginning of the civil year, in the autumn. And when did the civil year begin in 4 B.C.? began on the very first day, Tisri, or Ethanim, in 4 B.C. If you simply go backwards from that time, 280 days, let me show you what you arrive at. The days of the Jewish month are as follows. Tebeth, 29 days, Sebat, 30 days, Adar, 29 days, coming to Nice and Arabib, which is 30 days, Zif is 29, Sivan has 30, Tamaz, or Thamaz, 29, Ab, 30 days, Elul, 29 days, and we will add all of those together, but we're missing a few because I've left out one month on purpose. We're going back now from the first of Tishri to the time of the actual conception of John the Baptist and the, the time when we think possibly that Jesus Christ of Nazareth may have been born. If we count backward from the approximate time of his birth, there are 29 days in our September, 31 days in our August, 31 in July, 30 in June, 31 in May, 30 in April, 31 in March, 29 in February, and 31 in January. We can add those up and we've got 273, but there are 280 days in normal human gestation, so we're missing seven days. And we have arrived at January 31st. January 30th, 29th, 28th, 27th, 26th, January 25th. No, that's good. we got to go back to December, don't we? So we go back to December. And we end up, believe it or not, at December 25th in 5 B.C., which may well have been the date of Christ's conception. May have been. I don't know that the Bible actually strongly nails that down or indicates it, but it very well may have been the date for the conception of Jesus Christ. 280 days after that date, and we began counting back from the 15th of Tishri, is the first day of Tishri is what month? That's the seventh month. And if you look at Leviticus 23, what happens on the 15th day of that month? The, the uh, days of, I should say, the Feast of Tabernacles begins on the 15th of Tishri, the seventh month of God's year. It is very, very likely that Jesus Christ of Nazareth was born on the first day of the Feast of Tabernacles, which corresponds to 29 September 4 B.C. Now back in Luke again, in the second chapter. Joseph went up from Galilee, verse 4, out of the city of Nazareth into Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because of his lineage, to be taxed with Mary because she was a spouse. She was very great, you should say, in the days of her, her uh, delivery were to be accomplished. She brought forth her firstborn son, laid him in a manger. There was no room in the inn. The event concerning the shepherds comes next. And then it says, beginning in verse 12, This shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe lying in swaddling clothes at indicates bandages or wrappings of some sort, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth among men in whom there is goodwill, as you should read, peace. And it came to pass, as the angels were gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, Let's now go to Bethlehem and see this thing. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. They noise it all abroad, but Mary kept these things in her heart. In her heart, verse 19. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God. Now, in the world, you see all the so-called, you know, Christmas decorations, and people think the wise men showed up maybe an hour or so after the shepherds did, and they got the frankincense and the burn of gold. But notice verse 21. When eight days were accomplished for the circumcising of the child, so they were right there. They moved into the inn by now, probably. His name was called Jesus, that's when they named him, eight days later. Interesting that his naming ceremony on the day that he was circumcised was eight days after his birth and may well have occurred on the last great day of the feast in 4 B.C. And Jesus is his name. Now, when the days of her purification, according to the law of Moses, were accomplished, oh, well, we've still got some other time to deal with then. 
Now you look back into the 12th chapter and the 4th verse of Leviticus, and you'll find out that that was 40 days from the time of his birth, minus the 8 and so on for the circumcision. They brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Now we've got a month and 10 days after the birth of Christ. And then we have the citation from Exodus 13, 2. And they offered a sacrifice. Verse 25, Simeon, a young man, was there, just and devout. The Holy Spirit was upon him. It was revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came by the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him after the custom of the law, he took him in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now let your servant depart in peace according to your word. Do you know when that would have happened? Just count forward and you come to our 8th of November. The 8th of November. I found something fascinating this morning when I was looking into some of this. I found a quotation or two that I want to be sure to quote to you. Listen to what the Encyclopedia Britannica, 11th edition, says about a couple of those dates in history. Under, of all things, the article entitled Michaelmas, or Michael, the Archangel. It says, and I quote, In the Western Church, the festival of St. Michael and all the angels, or Michaelmas, is celebrated on the 29th of September. The 29th of September is very likely the date, the date of Christ's birth. The Greek Church dedicates the 8th of November to Michael, Gabriel, and all the angels. And I said, well, of all things, Deacon Bullinger hasn't got anything on that. Why did the Greek Church venerate that particular day? It is very possible Christ was born about or on the 29th of September. Maybe on the 27th, 28th, 30th, 31st, but it's somewhere within about a week of that time. I don't know exactly. But I'm speculating simply because of the beautiful types that are available to us in understanding those events. He may well have been presented in the temple, and Simeon there said what he did and prayed under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit on or about the 8th of November. So if you simply count backwards, Christ may have been conceived on December 25th. Early Christians may well have known this. It could have been an early festival of sorts, unnecessary, not commanded, no example set. But we deal with that in the church all the time. Every now and then somebody comes up with something they want to do, like observe new moons, or like have special fasts, or like observe the Feast of Purim. Or they want to do something to get a little more righteous, uh, do something a little more, a little closer to the party line or whatever. And so they want to observe something, have special feasts, and maybe liturgicalize the entire annual calendar and have all kinds of occasions. Well, the very early people, the very early eyewitnesses and the people who were there and who knew about these events had to know when John the Baptist was conceived. They surely knew when he was born. They knew the babies were six months apart. They had to know when Christ was born. There were eyewitnesses. They were the same age. If we take a look, we will also see a little bit interesting here about the wise men. I want to go back now, and this is sort of an aside, but into the, uh, let's see here, second chapter of the book of Matthew, something you may not have noticed. When Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, these wise men came, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? We've seen his star in the eastern to come to worship him. Well, they were asking where he should have been born, and everybody said, Bethlehem. This is very fascinating to me in verse 4. They had a major meeting of the Sanhedrin. The chief priests and scribes were all there. Herod sat them down, wanted to know. They had this big forum or assembly or parlance of some sort. And they were probably chatting together and talking about the scriptures and getting out the scrolls and arguing, as Jews do, and waving their hands in the air. And they all said with their head knowledge, Christ should be born in Bethlehem of Judea. That's where he had been born. For thus it is written by the prophet, quote, and they sat it out of Micah 5.2 and Jeremiah 31.15, And thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the princes of Judah, for out of you shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. The Jews knew with their head knowledge where Christ ought to be born, and they allegedly were looking for him at about that time. Thutis, who boasted himself to be somebody with his rabble, uh, Barabbas, any number of would-be revolutionaries would get mercenary groups around them and try to overthrow the Romans and try to be a second uh, Maccabeus or something like this. 
and they were always disappointed because each one of these people was sort of a flash in a pan and didn't really prove to be the Messiah for whom they were looking. They rejected Jesus Christ. Here, and we have no proof that the that these were the priests of Zoroaster or anybody else. We just know that they were called Magi in history and they aren't really identified. We don't know that they were Jewish. They probably were Gentile. We don't know that there were three of them. There may have been a dozen or 120 or only two. We only know there are three categories of gifts. But instead of thinking with their heads, they went straight with their heart and ended up at the feet of Jesus Christ while the Jews sat there thinking with their heads correctly disseminating and discerning the scriptures and remained right where they were and rejected Jesus Christ. Herod, when he had privily called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search diligently for the young child. You see, he inquired what time the star appeared. Well, they knew. When they heard the king, they departed and lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them, verse 9, till it came and stood over where the young child was. Young child is piadon, P-A-I-D-I-O-N, piadion, an infant or a lad in the Greek language. Doesn't mean a babe in arms. It means a young lad or an infant, a young boy. Now, when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding joy. And when they were come into the house, not the manger, where? Nazareth. The wise men went to Nazareth. They came across the Araba by the desert route to Jerusalem. They followed the star till it went and stood over where the babe was. He was now a Piedon or a young lad, and they followed the star till it came and stood over the house where the young lad was, saw the young child, again that word with Mary his mother, fell down and worshipped him, opened their treasures, presented unto him gifts, gold and frankincense of myrrh, and being warned of God in dream they should not return to Herod, they departed into their own country another way. They took the northern caravan route up through what would be Damascus and across the Golan Heights from Nazareth and around the northern part of the Sea of Chinnereth or Galilee and went back to Persia, a different route than the way they'd come in because they weren't in Jerusalem. They were up in northern Israel at Nazareth. And it was at this time that they fled to Egypt and God gave them the money to survive for all of those years till Herod was dead because he caused these people to give them gold and frankincense and myrrh. And so they had a purse which enabled them to take the young child and his mother and to flee into Egypt, it may well be, we just don't know, that they were, well, we can probably figure the number of years, as a matter of fact, because we can find when Herod died and what time they came back, and then we can determine that Joseph was still alive at the time that Jesus was 12 when he was in the temple of the Passover asking and answering questions to the doctors. But after that time, Joseph is never again mentioned. I find it fascinating that some of those dates were kept by some of the ancient people in the church and were obliterated and all knowledge lost of it over the centuries to where Christmas was substituted over a period of time which may have meant far more to those early people than we have supposed. Take a look at the book of Hebrews, the language of the Apostle Paul in the first chapter. Hebrews, the first chapter. Again, reference was made to this, but not to this specific verse, perhaps. God, who at sundry times and in different manners spoke in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by a son, the word his is italicized, not in the original, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through or by, Greek word en or ek, uh, by whom or through whom also he made the ages or the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, express image is the Greek word character, K-A, R-A-K-T-E-R, -E from which obviously we take the word character. And you see a letter on a page can be a character, or a cut-out piece of metal or a silhouette can be a character. So the stamped impress, the exact similitude of God the Father, is Jesus Christ, the express image of his person. And upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, I never understood that until about 1975 or 76 when I preached my sermon of the Feast of Tabernacles on the greatest secret never told. When Jesus Christ of Nazareth did not know God the Father was going to desert him at the last moment of extremis on the stake until he virtually saw the back of God disappear into the universe and cried out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, and Jesus, as I said, didn't fake it. 
He isn't like we are. He doesn't exaggerate. He doesn't say things for effect. It is pure, beautiful truth, or he doesn't say it. And he said it in anguish, and he said it in shock, and therefore he couldn't have known in advance that God was going to depart from him. And he cried out, My God, why hast thou forsaken me? So these words, when he had, you see in those final hours, by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Interesting language. In my previous concept, and perhaps in yours and that of the church, it is as if Christ, as we read in John the first chapter, was God. He was the creator. He made the universe, he made the worlds, he made the sun, he made the earth, he made Adam. He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. He came down to this earth, as it says in Philippians, and he emptied himself and became of no report. And we explain almost clinically how the very great God became a tiny spermatozoon of a human male sperm cell ignited with or united with an ovary, uh, the, the egg produced by the ovary of a young virginal lady who was probably one of the finest women who ever lived, and the process of normal development of the fetus in a womb was started. This is the very essence of Romans the 8th chapter and a microcosm of how God through his Holy Spirit begets us. Human birth is an exact type of spiritual rebirth, but in our own understanding haven't we always thought, well, he was God? and he became flesh, and he became God again. And he's back where he was. He's back at the right hand of God the Father, and there he is, right where he was before. I don't think so. I think there's something more. Being made so much better than the angels. Being made so much better. By what? By coming down to this earth by living a righteous life, condemning sin in the flesh, dying on the stake, and being resurrected, that is a process of making him into something that he never was before. Being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Look at this language that we tend to miss. For unto which of the angels said he, who? God the Father, at any time. You are my son, this day have I begotten thee. Ah, error. The Greek word means brought to the birth. When could Almighty God have said that, made that statement as a first person quotation inspired by the Holy Spirit to Jesus? At conception? Well, nonsense. At birth? Ridiculous. Couldn't understand it. It was a baby. Only one moment in time when God the Father could have made that statement. And that was on that Sunday as typifying the wave sheep offering on the first day following the weekly Sabbath during the days of unleavened bread, when earlier Jesus had said to the women, Touch me not, I'm not yet ascended. And that same evening coming back saying to the disciples, It is I, see me, touch my hands and my feet. In between those two events he ascended to heaven. And at that time, here's what God the Father said to him. You're my son. This day have I brought thee forth. And again, quote, I will be to him a father, and he will be to me a son. And again, at another time, another occasion, another place, when he brings in the first begotten into the world, he said, let all the angels of God worship him. And to the angels, he said, who makes his angels ministering winds or spirits, and his ministers, meaning his messengers or his angels, like a fiery flame. But unto the Son, he said, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness. When did God say that? At the coronation ceremony in heaven, on that day when Christ walked up the translucent sea of glass before the throne of God the Father, and Almighty God the Father said into the ears of his beloved Son these things. You have loved righteousness, you have hated iniquity, therefore God, even your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your fellows, and you, Lord, in the beginning has laid the foundation of the earth, 
and the heavens are the works of your hands. They shall perish, God the Father still talking to Jesus Christ, but you remain. They all shall wax old as does a garment, and as a vesture shall you fold them up, and they shall be changed, but you are the same, and your years shall not fail. And to which of the angels said he, God the Father, at any time, sit on my right hand till I make your enemies thy footstool. Now do you understand? It's almost as if God the Father is saying, congratulations, you did it, you made it, you've hated sin, you've loved righteousness, you have triumphed, you have succeeded, now sit here at my right hand, relax a while, you're back here, your, your, your name is O God, very God, and I've anointed you with oil above your fellows. Sit here until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Now it's my turn. I will bring about on this earth the terrible troubles that are going to come, and it is the day of the Lord, and at the culmination of that time, then Jesus Christ will come back down to this earth and begin to govern and to rule in his kingdom. That to me is a, a fantastic new concept, and to bring this all together, I will merely say, I believe that Jesus Christ of Nazareth, by the resurrection, by the ascension, and by the coronation, and by these words, and by the very experience of human flesh, by becoming flesh and being born of God by a resurrection, became something he never was before. Now he is very God who has been human. He has experienced something that God the Father has never experienced. There's perfect knowledge. But knowledge and experience are different things. You can know and you can experience. There is in heaven a new order of heavenly being that never existed before. The time when the great creator came to this earth, made into a human cell to become a human physical life and to ascend in triumph to the right hand of God the Father on high. We are to be begotten and to become a new order, a new rank, a new kind of spirit being at the same level of Jesus Christ. When you read through again and see that God said that he is made an high priest forever after the rank of Melchizedek, it may have even greater meaning than it ever did before. I'm beginning to see now that maybe Satan the devil had a reason for wheeling out the really big guns to try to smear all sorts of ridiculous paint over the face of great events which took place in the past, which some of our early brethren probably knew, but over the centuries have long since forgotten.